Hey there, it's Ben. I want to give a shout out to all those who are helping in our search for a permanent third host for Tales, and I want to give a quick shout out to a new Patreon backer, Dice for Brains, a great podcast, and we've had their GM, Ross, on a few times, and we'll definitely try to again. If you want to be like them, you can at patreon.com slash theheidiandway. Thank you, and now on to the show. Sitting down in the cantina, I wave over David to come over. This mustachioed gentleman is sitting next to me, a little deep in his cups. David, please meet Agent Renfield here. He's of His Royal Highness's Commission for the Preservation of the New Order. Apparently, he's just come to the sector and is trying to get his bearings. I take a seat next to Agent Renfield and snatch up a bottle, eager to keep him as deep in his cups as possible. When it comes to Compnor, I'd rather be an indistinct figure barely remembered from last night than someone who seriously ends up on the radar. As long as we stay anonymous, I am more than happy to keep our esteemed Imperial friend company. It could be a long night, but it will definitely make for a good tale from the Hydean Way. We're your hosts, David Pickering. And Ben Yendel. Earlier this week, I was talking on Twitter. I was just actually more venting about a pet peeve of mine in fiction. <laughs> uh, because it, like, it was like three things in one week where I noticed villains doing this, but... It really bothers me in a story when a villain, let's say the, someone comes to them, one of their lackeys comes to them with bad news, and they're like, the heroes escaped again, my lord. And the villain just kind of murders them, pretty much, or, or you know, beats them up or something like that, just for delivering bad news. Like, even if it wasn't the guy's fault, it's just sort of like, he just attacks or murders him. Because to me, that tells me about the villain, that the villain is infantile, has poor impulse control, generally doesn't have the emotional intelligence to keep it together. And that tells me that the villain is a weak character because <laughs> they can't, or not a weak character, they might be a good character, but they're not as effective a villain in my mind because a good villain to me, or like, you know, when that's actually intimidating or that would scare me, is one that's in control of themselves and one that is not able to be manipulated by pushing them to lose control of their emotions. But after saying all of that on Twitter... Cam, actually, uh, the same Cam that used to host the show, he commented that it's actually not quite just as, like, you know, egregious a problem as I was pointing out. He just, he stepped in and said, by nature, villains are people who sort of break the social contract. They're not people who react normally. They can be unstable and they can be unbalanced or unpredictable. And that those kind of scenes tend to show that unpredictability more than they do to serve as a, a way of showing us the villain is intimidating. But all that got me thinking about different kinds of villains, because it really got me thinking about <laughs> villains for whom doing that would work to build a character who wasn't sort of a weak villain, and characters that it would absolutely undermine to have that happen to them. Because in the case that I was specifically thinking of, it was a character who had been portrayed as a very cool, level-headed, like, you know, very master strategist sort of character, and them murdering an underling out of nowhere like that really undermined that for me. But I think it could work on some characters, so I figured we'd bring it up. Okay, I gotta ask, what was the villain that set this <laughs> off? Okay, um, so I may have mentioned before, I'm reading through the Horus Heresy series, which is Warhammer 30k technically, but it's like, sort of like the setting series for 40k. Very <laughs> slowly, I'm just sort of going through them. And in one of the short stories I was reading by an author I otherwise really like, so I'm not dissing them at all. I don't actually remember <laughs> specifically who it was, because there's several on the Horus Heresy, but I remember thinking, 
this guy doesn't normally do stuff like this, which is why it bugged me so much. But the villain, his name's Petarabo, and he's sort of this very bitter person, but he's he's known for being like the guy who can you know, break sieges and create these incredible defense networks because he thinks everything through and he's very, like, you know, level-headed. And so this guy comes to him and he's like, this person that you expected to be in command of the enemy isn't there. You know, it's not him. It's some lesser guy. <laughs> and he just murders his own soldier because the enemy commander isn't who he expected to be. And so I sort of read that and I was like, well, I don't really respect this guy as a villain anymore. And especially because you're trying to, like, paint him as intelligent and he just murdered a high-ranking officer of his own side because the, his enemies didn't do what he thought they would do. So to me, that's less level-headed and in control of himself and more emotional and, frankly, pretty puerile. <laughs> like, I've seen bosses who are like that, who, yeah. if you cross them for whatever reason, they will fire you. They will find some reason to fire you. And sure, being fired is not the same as being killed, <laughs> but one of the things that RPGs do is help us work through a lot of the anxieties and realities that we have in our day-to-day -day life. Yeah, absolutely. Someone who isn't performing at a level that they want, someone who does something really stupid and costs everyone time or money or puts the fleet out of position, good old Admiral Ozzel you. Yeah, I was actually going to say, I think as a counterpoint to what I was just talking about, a scene where a character, like a villain, kills an underling and it doesn't bother me is actually Darth Vader, because in that instance, and definitely not in every portrayal, because I think people just sort of ran with Vader killing underlings and it appears so many times in other work where it isn't like this. But he, in that scene at least, it wasn't like this was the first time that Ozzel had been incompetent. And so at that point, Vader was sort of demonstrating, this is what happens if you continually fail <laughs> to do things that I think you should be able to do. As opposed to, you gave me bad news for one time, therefore you die. Because that was more, I have had enough, and the next guy needs to be fully aware of what will happen if he is as bad as you are. On the other hand, I do kind of wonder about Captain Nita. That's true. Who dies not too much longer after Ozzel, because the Falcon then went in... I think it was his Star Destroyer that got glommed onto by the hook, because there's apparently no windows in the back of a Star Destroyer. <laughs> yes. I don't remember, but that was a, that was the Falcon with the claw thing. Yeah, he like hooks on there, and then they go into hyperspace. And the... Like, you've got that. With Vader, he is immensely ruthless. When Vader kills Antilles on the Tantive Four, it's at that point where you sort of set Vader's modius operandi. When Vader kills one of his own in the next movie, it's not that far of a leap. That's a good point. And that's a little bit of what I started to come to with Cam talking to him. Vader, I think, falls into what I call the, the second category of characters. He isn't really in control of his emotions. I guess that's a key point of his character arc, at least in the prequel specifically. Vader is constantly angry. He's constantly tormented some of the the old legend stuff goes into detail about how he he intentionally keeps himself reminded of his past failures and the things that he thinks have been wronged against him by the jedi by obi-wan by other people he keeps himself mad all the time if anything he could give banner lessons <laughs> on being angry all the time yeah i mean that's really he just he's very good at keeping it bubbling under the surface and part of why you don't see him is like growly and angry all the time is he's, you know, wearing an expressionless face mask. And he's very good at <laughs> using that cold fury, I guess, as a as a tool of intimidation. 
Yeah, if anything, he is almost the walking avatar of anger. Yes. And hate. That is what Vader, especially by the time A New Hope comes around, it has become. A lot of the stuff that you see in the Darth Vader comic that really was the Dr. Afra comic. <laughs> A lot of the stuff that you see in there when you actually are reading Vader is him just being angry and being annoyed at people. And him being in a position where if you annoy him, if you are no longer useful to him, you will die. Because you are an impediment in his path. He is always the treacherous one. With Vader being that kind of a character, I think it's more in keeping with him to execute an underling. But even then, he, like, I guess he, he's done both of the things. Like, he executed Ozil for failing, and he executed Nita. You could argue for giving him bad news, or for failing, or some combination of the two. Nita was served accepting responsibility for failing. Yes, which to, you know, any competent boss would be a good thing that your <laughs> your underling is saying, this was my fault and I'm going to correct it rather than hiding it from you or something. But, you know, I guess Vader doesn't really want that. But when you've got a thousand middle managers, each one is a little hard to pick out. But then the other kind of villain, and I and this was unmentioned, I can't remember specifically who mentioned him. On that same Twitter thread, someone mentioned Grand Admiral Thrawn as sort of a counterpoint to the same, like he's a, <laughs> a different kind of villain. Uh, and th they were specifically talking about him in Rebels, which, surprising no one, I haven't seen his arc in Rebels yet. So I was just going off of his appearances in the old Legends book. He is much, I mean, his whole character arc is that, or not character arc, but character concept is that he's this really, really intelligent intellectual villain who will outthink you, you know, eight steps ahead. And I think later stuff sort of turned him into an anti-hero, or at least a more sympathetic villain, but... They tried to, yes. Yeah, they they went back into his, like, origin story and basically said, well, Palpatine lied to him. Yeah, they tried to make it so that Palpatine was the just mass manipulator. Thrawn wasn't as clear thinking as he was and also made the Empire seem to be, at least in their minds, a lot nicer than it was. Yeah, I mean, the, the, whole, the whole thing in the book was, I think, Palpatine said, look, I have proof that the Yuuzhan Vong are coming, even if they didn't say that outright. And we need a big empire that's strong enough to fight them off. And so everything is for the greater good of fighting the empire of the Yuuzhan Vong off, which was sort of a lie and a half-truth at the same time. But when you take a look at the actual Thrawn of the Heir to the Empire trilogy, yes. you have someone who's relatively cool and calculating and is undone by acts of intuition and desperation. Yeah, because people and you know, the people do things that Thrawn did not expect because they're not acting rationally or logically or he doesn't have all the information yeah mm -hmm. i think ultimately spoilers for the end of the old thrawn arc but he is killed by his bodyguard who was fanatically loyal up until he found out a piece of information thrawn didn't know he knew so yeah that's sort of what ended up causing his downfall <laughs> is thinking he knew everything but arrogance is an excellent villain flaw since you put this out on twitter i've been thinking of this as well and what you just said really crystallized a lot of how I've been thinking about this. Having a villain without a flaw is annoying. Yes, very much so. You'll know exactly where I'm going with this. But with Vader, his flaw is he is perfectly angry. And in the end, he is angry out of being alone, wanting the connection with, and also just wanting to overthrow good old Palpy. Yes. And in the end, it's love for his kid. That's something that Sheev would never consider. 
this walking embodiment of anger having a weakness for love. Which is really funny considering how she got him in the first place. So he really should have seen that one coming. <laughs> but again, that's Sheev's villain flaw. Yeah, and Sheev and Thrawn are sort of cut from the same cloth, where they're both master manipulators, but their arrogance is what gets them. Talk about an amazing strategist. Sheev is amazing. As a senator, yes, he is the master Sith, but as a senator, politically, he's able to format and start a war in which he's the leader on both sides? <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. I mean, even Luke calls him out on it in the movie. He says, your overconfidence is your weakness, and he pretty much nailed him. It is phenomenal. So you've got overconfidence of these master planners because they just can't conceive of them not thinking of everything. You've got Mr. Hate being taken down by love, which is mm -hmm. two ends of the same spectrum. Now, in the sequel trilogy, we have Rage Boy. Yes, it, the emotional flaws of Kylo Ren are fairly obvious to anyone who paid attention during the movie, and by that I mean didn't sleep through it. There was a lot of loud noises. If you slept through it, <laughs> I'm impressed. Or you might want to get your hearing checked, one or the other. The thing that I'm interested in in comparison, in the EU for Vader, they came up with all this stuff of how to be posted to the Executor or to the Dauntless was the fast track to your own commander, to promotion. Why? Because, well, everyone's just dying left and right. High risk, high reward. Exactly. If you are good at your job, you will get promoted. It's the one place where a meritocracy might actually happen, on account of the chaff that gets flung out the airlock, or more readily put into the recycling, for everyone to eat later, is going to be... They're going through officers quickly. Even Thrawn of old fell into this trap because there were several cases where he was bemoaning the fact that he couldn't kill off people because he just didn't have any left over. Yeah. Where one guy was lollygagging at his station, he had the guy, oh no, that was Zinge. Oh yeah, Mr. Moneybags, that was a whole different kind of villain. <laughs> exactly. Thrawn and Zinge had almost the exact same uh, situation. With Thrawn, he was bemoaning the fact that some guy lollygagging on duty, playing a game, playing a flight simulator, he couldn't have him killed like Vader would because he just didn't have the people. Well, that was about to change because he got this cloning technology way before clones were a thing. Yes, that, a lot of things in the Legend canon seemed very original, but then if you look at them in light of the prequels, it's sort of like, oh, well, <laughs> yeah. As soon as the prequels came out, they decided to burn down the galaxy so they didn't have to care about the prequels. I like my fully integrated new canon. Even taking a look at, let's say, Batman villains, because they seem to be a fairly odd group. Yeah. The one that I keep thinking of that one might liken to Kylo Ren, in theory, is the Joker. <laughs> I just think that's funny considering the whole Mark Hamill thing. Oh yeah, I find that absolutely hilarious as I was uh, considering it. With Kylo Ren, it's so much of, I'm wanting something, I am doing something. It is out of pure selfishness. Mm -hmm. Which then implies the way to defeat Kylo Ren is through an act of pure selflessness. Which is something he would never consider. Yes. This is sort of going to the theme of what we've been talking about. Is your villain is on a continuum. With the Joker, it's supposedly it's anarchy. It's written by normal writers, so there's only so much true chaos they can get that doesn't become doing something just to do things. Yeah. 
I actually have been reading the um, the Injustice comics, which are based off of the the fighting game universe where Superman goes evil. Essentially, there's a lot more to it. Yeah, I've really been enjoying those. And one of the things that they kind of put forward very subtly, it's not like anyone comes out and says it, but they sort of imply that the Joker is pretty motivated by a desire for attention in the sense that he always wants an audience. He's not the kind to commit a crime in secret, even if it benefits him. He wants to do bigger and better and and show off almost. That is certainly a part of it. For me, the Joker really comes down to he is, in a lot of ways, the foil to the control of Batman. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The Joker becomes the antithesis of what the Batman is, and the two of them are two sides of the same coin in so many ways. I do find it absolutely hilarious for the 2080 crossover where they're having Batman crossover with Judge Dredd. <laughs> you would sort of think the one who is against the Joker would also be the one who would team up with Dredd because, well, one's about justice, one's about order. And the writers very quickly figured out that, well, those two don't mix. They don't mix well. So Dredd and Batman then just ended up hating and starting to fight each other. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, I mean, I was going to say, I don't think Batman would tolerate the whole murder angle. No, no, he wouldn't. There's also the fact that 2080 understands with Dread, Dread is the villain of his own comic. Sure, he may be going up against others, but truly, Dread is the villain. And if you've only ever seen the Sylvester Stallone Dread movie and you're going off of that, that's not how Dread is in 2080. <laughs> that's Sylvester Stallone in a funny hat shooting people who deserved it. That's what you get when you try and humanize Dread. The Carl Urban one is actually really good. That is one I haven't seen yet, but I've had like four people tell me I should watch it. Watch it after you watch Rebels. <laughs> okay, the question I've got for you is how do you bring, like, we're talking about villain tropes. And right. how do you bring these villain tropes, how do you bring these villain concepts to your table? Like, it isn't just that, oh, they have a character, they have a way that they act. Well, especially because this is difficult. Unless you're doing, like, cutaways in your game, which I don't intend to do. You're not seeing the villain unless he's in front of the heroes. So everything you have to work with is either what he presents to the heroes or what they can learn peripherally. Like, through evidence or what other people say about the villain. How would I portray these two different types of characters? I think if we're going for a villain, like you said, every villain is on a continuum. When you're trying to portray a villain... I think the first couple of encounters with that villain shouldn't necessarily hint too much about the continue. Maybe give a little bit, but you do want the villain to be intimidating at first. Like, you know, in you know, like take, take Kylo Ren. Kylo Ren's first encounter <laughs> is not one where he betrays his childishness and his selfishness. Really. It might be there as an undercurrent, but in the first scene with Kylo Ren, he stops a blaster bolt with his mind, and then he does a couple of other very intimidating things, and he's still wearing the mask, so you don't really know what he looks like. Later on, Kylo Ren gets less intimidating, and one of the biggest criticisms I've heard leveled against The Last Jedi is that people are having a hard time taking Kylo Ren seriously after the amount of childishness he displayed in that movie. <laughs> and while I actually liked The Last Jedi... I can't necessarily disagree with them too much on that. I can see where he could be an intimidating villain in the third movie. But yeah, I think they may have overplayed their hand in the name of comedy for Kylo Ren. <sighs> but I don't know. I, I need more time to think about it. My own thoughts on the Kylo Ren thing and him being too comical, I guess, is 
some of it is really a villain coming into their own. Normally, we're getting villains that are the villain and they get little or no change over the course of however many movies. Yes. Khan, through Space Seed and The Wrath of Khan, doesn't really go through a character arc much. No, he is as you see him. That's actually the entire point of that character. For Cybok in The Final Frontier, because I like all of them. <laughs> It's only in the very end where you get the twinge and the twist of what's going on. Does he as a character grow? We are so conditioned to villains not growing that the villain is static and it's only the heroes on the hero's journey that grow. That seeing Kylo Ren blossom into a villain is new for us in some ways. You could take prequel Anakin and, uh, you know, original series and it can say pretty much the same thing and i think you wouldn't be wrong and that's one of the things is that there is a particular turning point in revenge of the sith where anakin is turned but yeah if you take a look at as the star wars twitter account is well to remind you the vader uh, star wars story spans six movies going from episode one through episode six and over that entire journey you've got a huge character arc for the main villain but when you see him in four through six it's a relatively flat thing if you, if you just watch four five and six as you know they were originally intended you don't see him come into his own he is as he is to begin with and the arc is a redemptive arc you can sort of see him he starts off in you know a new hope at the height of his villainy empire strikes back he's still doing a lot of villainy things but you can tell he wants to overthrow palpatine he's not as exactly as we first expected him to be and then six really shows all the cracks in his armor and and the point at which he redeems himself. The prequels, the whole point is that it's Anakin, this like, you know, 10 year old kid, when we first meet him, who is selfless and kind and, you know, whatever else you want to say about him. But he's not evil <laughs> and seeing him become that. And uh, again, a lot of people were annoyed with Anakin because he was whiny and he wasn't all that intimidating and he wasn't a full villain yet. And I think if you want to show that in an RPG, I would take a more careful approach. I think honestly, what I would do if I wanted to show a villain coming into their own would be to have a secondary villain who is the more main villain at one point, like do a campaign where the the villain coming into their own is a secondary villain, maybe even a counterpoint to the heroes kind of character and have them slowly become more of a full villain. Well, so that the main villain of the piece isn't an incomplete villain, if that makes any sense. That does make sense to me. One of the other ways that can work is essentially having a somewhat selfish NPC that's commonly there for the players slowly grow into a little bit more power and becoming more and more of an actual villain. Yeah. Ooh, that's a good call. Like, at some point, a villain is a villain because they have power and are able to actualize what their goals are. It doesn't really matter what you think is going to be the bad thing that they do. It's they can accomplish this bad thing. Mm -hmm. It's like they can blow up this Star Destroyer. If you consider that a bad thing and you have a group that is able to sneak on board and plant charges to blow up the engines, that would be a bad thing. That you would be trying to get these villains. Like it, Some of it is from a certain point of view. You do get into a bit of the moral relativism of what is the villain for your campaign and making them as much of a character as any of the other NPCs. Oh, okay. Here's, here's a 
example of one thing that I'd lay bets most people have used in an Edge campaign, but very few people have really realized that they're running the, this way. The main villain in most Edge campaigns, especially when money's around, is the crime boss. The one that they owe money to. That's the villain. That's a good point. Because they owe this villain that much money, they're having to do all these jobs that they never would want to do. Like, you've got someone who's just wanting to run a small shipping line. They're not wanting to run guns because they understand what running guns is going to end up doing. They're going to be running drugs, not because they're wanting to be this amazing drug smuggler. No, it's because they need to for money or for reasons of extortion or blackmail, which are kind of the same thing. Right. (laughs) That's a good point. I like what you were saying about the crime boss being the real villain of an edge campaign in a lot of cases, because what you were saying made me think it almost it tries to suck the heroes into being the villain, right? You know, they don't set off to become drug smuggling, gun running, crazy people. But Edge wants to pull them that direction. And the villain wants to get them in deeper and deeper so they can't get out. He's not looking to make villains so that he has more villains in the world. It's not some sort of comic booky thing like that but he just wants to pull them into villainy because then he has them wrapped around his finger and he can get you know what he wants out of them it's like the amway of villainy (laughs) i really really like that explanation well yeah the whole idea of at least that you are starting in small with the intention of getting someone to do more and more you know like amway's like you become a mini salesperson for them and then you slowly you know, get more involved and sell more things. And then they have someone else who's recruiting new people. It's it's an effective marketing strategy, but it works for evil people too, and not just companies that sell <laughs> whatever the heck Amway actually sells. I do want to bring up one Saturday afternoon cartoon villain. Mm-hmm. Because, well, you really can't have a discussion on villains without bringing him up. Or at least if you do, you're not really doing it justice. And... That's Xanatos from Gargoyles. <laughs> What's funny is that before we started recording, Jonathan Frakes was mentioned, and yet he is now the guy we were talking about as far as villains go. Yeah, you've got Jonathan Frakes being Xanatos. Xanatos is the character with all the plans. He is sort of the idea of the pure knowledge villain. In the current season of The Flash on... Uh, the CW, because, well, sometimes I like watching that. Oh, I like The Flash. You've got a villain there. Uh, Devo? I am I have only watched the first two seasons, so I'm not sure. The current villain is very much like Xanatos. Has plans within plans within plans within plans. So that when the characters foul up this one obviously evil plan... This other secondary, more evil plan is able to move forward because of something good that the players have done. It's sort of these really horrible choices. Like, one of the ideas for plotting out things is just giving two choices to the players that they want the answer to be neither. They can't do either of these, but they have to choose one. As they keep on choosing the lesser evil, which really works for an edge campaign, they slowly build up this, what they thought was a bunch of little evils, turning into this gigantic one. Ooh. I actually found out the other day that uh, one of the tropes on TV tropes, when the villain is got a plan that has like a bunch of different spinning plates, and you solve one, and there's another one that you've just <laughs> uncovered, it's, it's literally called the Xanatos Gambit after that guy. And I love the difference between a Xanatos Gambit and a Batman Gambit. Mm-hmm. 
the entire difference between the two is the Xantos Gambit at the very end is supposed to fail. The Batman Gambit doesn't. One is for villains and one is for heroes, narratively, anyway. Exactly. A Batman Gambit being something like Ocean's Eleven. I'm pretty sure that the comic adaption of it is called Justice League Doom. <laughs> I'll just use the movie as the basis for it, but I know there was also, I think it was a series called like Justice League Tower of Babel. Okay. The idea is a main villain gets together a bunch of smaller villains that are all personally connected to one or the others of the good guys. So you've got like Cheetah for Wonder Woman, the sort of perfect example of the big bad for the big goods, and create a situation where the good guys can't win because of how they are. The way that they got these plans is because they stole it from Batman's computer. They get Mirror Master in there somehow, and he steals <laughs> Batman's contingency plans for the Justice League. That's a good call. <laughs> the entire problem with this villain's plan, which is using Batman's plans almost perfectly, is considering this is Batman, like a actual human who is training, and boatloads and boatloads of money, literally. His entire concept of the contingency plan for him is everyone else. Right. Built within the character is, yeah, Wonder Woman can snap my neck. Superman can snap my neck. The Flash can do his weird vibrating hand into the heart thing. <laughs> you name it, there is a way for all of the other Justice Leaguers to take out Batman. Almost just without a thought. It's just, they kind of respect him, and they let him play. <laughs> yeah, the whole thing comes down because they put a relatively weak foe against Batman. Batman then realizes what's going on and then has to undo his plans. Which, of course, this being Batman, he has. How do you undo his contingency? <laughs> Batman has plans. He has plans for when his plans are discovered, <laughs> when they are countered, and when they are used against him. But like with the Xanatos plan is, oh, you stop my... My weather machine. Okay, yeah, you stop my weather machine from causing all this lightning, and you solve that by drying out the air and having all the water flow down, causing flooding. Well, this ship that I need to get from a couple miles inland out to sea is now out to sea, where I needed it. These kind of plans, by the way, are excellent for your villains to use, but do so sparingly, because it will eventually come to feel like, to the players, the GM is just saying, ah, I knew you would do this, and so I have prepared a plan to make your victory meaningless. Yeah, and that's that's the problem to the Xanatos-type character. Or the Thrawn-type character, to be honest. David, do you have any sort of suggestions for, like, beyond just not having it happen? <laughs> Say you are going up against a Mastermind-style character, how mm -hmm. would you suggest exactly spoon-feeding the players how to defeat them? But how would you try and defeat one of these masterminds well here's my general rule when i'm running trying to run intelligent characters and weirdly enough i have run thrawn before but it was in a campaign set right after a new hope so i was sort of running him as a lower ranking officer and he was using the heroes to do something uh he like he was blackmailing one of the characters and that was a big reveal moment for the campaign but what i would do if i were to do something like that again is First off, I would let the characters try to come up with a plan that could defeat him. Because quite honestly, I'm not usually smarter than everyone else in the room when we sit down to play an RPG. I can come up with a plan for the villain 
But in reality, I am not Grand Admiral Thrawn. I am a guy <laughs> who is pretending, for the sake of creating an interesting plot, that I am in Grand Admiral Thrawn's shoes and I am trying to figure out what he would do. But sometimes the other, like, four, five, six, you know, given my group, it could be like 12 people sitting around the table, <laughs> they could come up with something that legitimately would defeat Thrawn's plan that I have given Thrawn. Say. Okay. If they don't do that, if they don't come up with some massive Batman gambit that I think would actually have worked, I would look to the villain flaw to be his undoing. So in the case of Thrawn, it would be arrogance. He's created his plan. He doesn't really believe that they are maybe intelligent enough to find a loophole in his plan or to find something like that. So he's going to give them an opening and it's not spoon feeding them a way to defeat him. It's just he will eventually make a mistake based on his flaw as a villain. And you could do this for pretty much any of your villains. So Kylo Ren, if for some reason Kylo Ren was you know smart enough to come up with a good plan, his selfishness, I mean, like, you know, spoilers for The Last Jedi, but that is ultimately what ends up happening is they use his weakness against him. He has victory literally <laughs> directly in front of him. There's almost nothing he could do to screw it up. And he does. He screws it up for himself because he gets all focused on Luke Skywalker, which is his like flaw is he just really wants revenge on Luke Skywalker. Well, even going for The Force Awakens, he gets hyper-focused in on something, on someone, and it's his focal point of rage. Yeah. So if I was running a Xanatos or a Thrawn-type character, it's a campaign. Like, I have no way of running this on a short amount. If I'm running it on a short thing, it's... I have a C-plot that I do keep mentioning that then the players may run across, may not, and it'll just be this really cool little side scene and, okay, onto the main plot. Yeah, personally, I don't think I would try to do a mastermind in a one-shot, just because you don't have the time to really get across how smart they are and, you know, any of that. With a campaign, it's, I would try and figure out what the main plot is, like what the main big bad thing is, mm -hmm. and then I'd also try and figure out what are little steps along the way to do that, like to build this big thing. Like, say I'm wanting to mine these gigantic kyber crystals, and then I'm wanting to get all these smaller ones to start creating energy for it, and then I'm wanting to refine these giant kyber crystals into focusing things. Oh, wait, we've kind of done that. Anyway, <laughs> what's one of the things that needs to happen that can go wrong? It could be we're wanting to keep this entirely secret, so we could have it. The players are trying to get in and find out information on this place, like the existence, and maybe they're able to. A great example is, well, sorry, David, this is mildly spoilerific. That's fine. I'm, at this point, it's my own fault if I haven't <laughs> watched it, so. What happens is the crew of the ghost go to Geonosis because they're tracking down Saab because someone tipped him off to Saab being there. Well, they initially go to Geonosis and they're trying to just get some supplies from one of the orbiting facilities that are there. This turns into a trap, which leads to Callus and Zeb landing on a moon and really weird things happening. <laughs> then later, you've got the ghost going back to Geonosis and things are changed, but they've got no idea why. It's essentially running a second plot that the players are touching on every now and then. And sometimes this is the little breadcrumbs that they eventually put together towards the end of a campaign and start thinking, oh, that's what you were meaning. Yeah, I do like that. It's trying to figure out the breadcrumbs to leave. That's one of the tricks to a mastermind. The other trick to a mastermind that I've found is when you're actually looking for 
ways to pull the Thrawn or the Xenatos bit of trying to show that you have thin wheels is bank on the characters succeeding. So your players are going to succeed on this mission. How does their success move my thing forward? That's a good call. Yeah, because realistically, like I said, you are probably not smarter than your characters to the degree that you're going to be actually pulling a Xanatos Gambit on them. But you have the advantage of being the GM and having time in between their sessions and knowing everything that they said. So you can react to how they were saying it, come up with a way retroactively for him to have thought that it would benefit him if they thwarted his plan. That's the other really cool part. That's a really fun part, is if you can come up with a way of, you really did mean to do it this way. Well, what was an unintended consequence of that? Right. I keep practicing this, and it's sometimes it works, sometimes it really doesn't. It's like physically presenting with stats a big bad to your players before you're ready for them to die. <laughs> Any equipment you put in front of your players, expect them to get. Any character that you put in front of the players, expect it to die. Yep. Those are sort of the tenets that I run by as a GM. It's also the reason why very few of my NPCs ever have disruptor weapons. And yes, you can gene lock them, but that just seems cheating. Yeah, that just tells the players that you wanted to use it, but you don't want to give them any fun toys. Yeah, I keep on trying to put forward the sort of starting or the midpoint of a Xanatos thing. And it's sort of a two-part campaign. The first part is working up to the players meeting the mastermind, figuring out what the mastermind is, and then them understanding that they must beat the mastermind. And it's at that point where the mastermind is the more arrogant. This is the point where, well, I've already won. Right. This is Azamatis. Yeah, I just butchered the name from Watchmen. I did it 15 minutes ago. Oh, yeah. (laughs) If you don't want your players to hate you, though, don't have the villain win before they've actually arrived. Well, that being said, you could have that sort of bit with the villain, but have the villain be so arrogant, underestimating the players, that the players still get one shot at doing it. You aren't trying to teleport into being this giant uh, thing from outer space. It's they have sent something in motion. Yeah, exactly. It's rather than I did it 15 minutes ago, maybe you sent the signal 15 minutes ago and there's still time to stop it. Because obviously, you know, Watchmen isn't necessarily a story where the heroes are set up to win and it would probably make a bad RPG. (laughs) Yeah, I guess kind of what I'm suggesting to use examples, change it from the Watchmen to Rogue One. Mm -hmm. Like Watchmen, the villains won. At that point, the villain has done the villain thing, even if it is for the best of intentions. But they've already won. They've already done their thing. The worst that the heroes can do is take their revenge. As hollow as that's going to be. With Rogue One, they can still do what they need to. They just might not survive the attempt. Right. It's less a matter of complete inability to act and more a matter of it's going to cost you something to pull this off. So, David, do you have any sort of final thoughts for our listeners on how to deal with a villain in their campaign honestly my biggest advice for using a villain in your campaign like this would be to really sit down beforehand and i know that's usually one of my pieces of advice but i do think it helps to sit down beforehand and decide (laughs) is this villain what spectrum are they on like what is their strength what is their weakness and and build from there whether you want them to be intelligent emotional impulsive collected angry calm suave whatever 
no matter what you want them to be, figure out what their weakness is and figure out what they're good at. And if you know what they're good at and you know what their fatal flaw is, you've got the beginning of your character arc and you've got how they eventually end up getting undone. And as you're saying that, I'm thinking use the morality tables from Force and Destiny if you got them. Yeah. If you're just sort of grasping at straws. For my own final piece of advice, have your characters remain your characters. The inciting incident that David described at the very beginning of the episode is when the character acted out of character. It didn't seem like something that the character would do. Yeah. That's the thing you got to fight against. You can have a chaotic, like, walking embodiment of chaos where they're coming in and talking up someone and then stabbing someone else and then talking to a third person. You can have a character like that, but then you're not expecting these people to have much of a plan. And for those with plans, you expect them to have deep and detailed plans. Something that the players might even be able to get whiff of ahead of time. So that they can start understanding, oh look, there's a mechanation behind the curtain. They can understand that there is a curtain. Yeah. (laughs) When you're finding out what your character is, have your character remain that character. And if you have a character break from what it is, even if you're wanting to explore a character that's had a bit of a break, as one might say, where they are essentially a walking embodiment of chaos, and every now and then they have this act of lucidity, play that up for the characters. Make sure that whatever character development or character act there is, it's for the players to see. Right. I agree with you. Because, I mean, again, no matter what you plan for your villain, it doesn't matter if the you know, the players don't see it, essentially. It might as well not even happen if your players don't see it. Yeah, because ultimately, when you're playing an RPG, if the players don't see it, then all you've done is present things in the dark to yourself. Making sure Renfield is in the taxi, heading back to the Imperial Garrison, I toss up a chit and catch it. Well, it was certainly nice of the old bean to pay for all the drinks tonight, don't you think? I mean, fresh off the ship and already spending his first month's pay on showing us locals a good time. I never thought Compnor would be so generous. They're usually the tight-fisted, out-of-my-way scum type. Fortunately, with the amount he was drinking, there's no way he'll remember us in the morning, right? We go our merry, scot-free, totally-got-away-with-it way on the next tale from the Hydean Way. You can find show updates on Twitter at the Hydean Way, and I'm at aka Agent Shades. And you can find me at Tutorium Ice. We are all at thehydeanway.com, where you can find previous episodes, links to things we talk about on the show, and our live play podcast, Heroes of the Hydean Way. Our podcast is on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play, where you can find more episodes and help us out by rating and reviewing us. Drop us a holocom at tales at thehydeanway.com. We're also on Facebook as Tales from the Hydean Way. If you like what we do and want to support the show, you can find us at patreon.com slash thehydeanway. Or give us a coffee at ko-fi.com slash the Heidi and Way.